When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And welcome to this week's New Statesman podcast. We look back at the parliamentary year. And we ask, should MPs just stay over the summer? Plus, I'll be talking to Lawrence Scott about his new book, Picnic, Lightning. Stephen, do we have to talk about the year in Brexit? Yeah, I mean, I think I would say we could just talk about the year more broadly, but really that... What is the year, though? Name the great pieces of legislation that you've really appreciated in this last parliamentary session. Um, I suppose if I were an elephant, I would be fairly into... The ivory ban. The ivory ban, uh, which after a slightly fraught political... um, Well, that's nice. Okay, so so it's been a good year for elephants. What about it for everybody else who's not an elephant? For everyone else who's not been an elephant, it's not been a vintage parliamentary year. I mean, we still haven't seen the domestic abuse bill, for example, which was promised us ages ago. I wonder if that will come back in... The autumn, people have been sort of desperately trying to put amendments on it. For example, Stella Creasy's got a campaign that she wants to add an amendment to it to repeal the Offences Against the Person Act 1861, which would sweep away the original legislation that makes abortion illegal and leave everybody to make their own independent frameworks on that. So I would like to see that. That would be nice to see that. But um, no, Saeed Javid is in charge of bringing that back. And uh, well, he's got a lot of weird interviews to give about the death penalty. So he's probably got, you know, he's got a lot on. Yeah, I mean, I think, it's odd. So I think the, the the DV bill is, I think, the biggest example of the the massive failure of the government since the election. Because when you don't have a majority, there are two things you can do. You can do nothing, or you can do a bunch of cheap, popular stuff. That's got cross-party that's agreement. That's got cross-party appeal. Yeah. And you outsource the fact that your civil service is obviously uh, hugely snowed under by Brexit by effectively getting a bunch of large blue-chip charity and advocacy organisations to go just write down your asks on this piece of paper and we'll we'll get them through that way. And the thing is, is ultimately, I mean, as indeed the fact that the Labour Party still takes responsibility for the fact it facilitated and did provide the majority of votes for all of that 1960s liberalisation, it does show that If you are the governing party and a bunch of good stuff coincidentally goes through Parliament on your watch, it's like the upskirting bill is another really good example. As well as having the bad news story of Chris Chope going... um, I'm going to filibuster this because tell you what, I believe in the right for people to stick their cameras up women's skirts. Why allow... Vera Hobhouse to share some of the like if you're if you're the government you don't yeah you just go oh well this is a lovely parliament private members bill zoop I'm afraid it's now a government just introduce it in yeah in your own time yeah which you can actually which you absolutely do because the way the Commons timetabling works right I think probably people don't get that that there are some days and time set aside for opposition bills but then uh, obviously the majority of time is set aside for government bills um I think I probably should say so I don't get sued by Chris Chope that I don't think he actually explicitly said that he was in favour of. Uh, people putting their cameras up women's skirts. It's just that he believed the principle of was more important than acting against it in legislation. Yeah, I mean, so I, I do actually agree with the argument that he makes about private members' bills and the way that the gov- governing the government increasingly goes, oh, here's another bit of legislation that we actually support and we want we want to do it in. However, it's just like, well... <laughs> Like make make that argument in another way. Yeah, because um, yeah. the rest so, of his party were 
fuming with him, and rightly so. Um, but let's talk about Brexit, because I think that... So Jacob Rees-Mogg has been out over the weekend saying, um, we'll probably have to just wait 50 years to see how amazeballs Brexit is going to be, which is one of those things that you say when, like, I don't know, I just imagine... Imagine if you just built, you know, planted a, a maze or something like that, and then you have all your friends around, and they go, "This maze looks terrible," and you have to go, "Yeah, but in fifty years, this will be amazing." Just where in Lewisham do you live? Yeah, and I've this got, is a. <laughs> I've, got a yeah, my, I've got a very small maze on my patio outside right. the back, um, and but in fifty years, Stephen, very thin people are going to have a great time. So I think then, yeah, the, there are lots of problems with the fifty years thing, as indeed you, you, some of which you've talked. But I think the the biggest one, right, is that. The thing I've realised increasingly is is Brexit as a final destination does not exist. The Conservative Party doesn't have a final destination than it actually wants. That really worries me because there's something that people have been saying a lot about, come back to something we were talking about earlier, about abortion rights, uh, about the fact that the US Republicans don't actually want a final settlement on abortion. What they want is a perpetual ongoing wedge issue which I think is not an unreasonable way of uh, of seeing it, right? They just, they don't want to ever let it go. They just want, you know, they just want to be perpetually able to harp on and agitate about it. And I feel like Brexit could probably fulfil that function for the Tory party, if that's what you're saying. I mean, you know, the whole thing was David Cameron saying going to have the referendum stop people banging on about Brexit. I think it's probably quite clear now that, that, that the banging will never stop. Yeah, the, the banging will never end. I think the, the difference is, is that with the... Republican Party and, and Roe v. Wade, right, it exists as a handy wedge issue because they're not responsible for its existence. As long as it exists on the statute book, they probably think that they are inoculated from majority opposition to them getting rid of it, but they can just do lots of sort of bad faith laws like abortion clinics may be open, but they must hire eight giraffes. Yeah, and you have to be um, open only between 4.30 and 5, and you have to give everyone a transvaginal ultrasound, and you have to have your signature from your rabbi, a priest, an imam, an Englishman, an Irishman, a Scotsman. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I take your point. Whereas the the thing which I think is both better and in some other ways worse about Brexit is that basically every focus group, every poll, when you ask people, because obviously the majority of people think Brexit's going badly, when you ask them why, they say things like, oh, it's going on too long or, you know, the, <laughs> the promises are... And actually, right, it is true. The promises of that referendum result are not going to be honoured because they are mutually contradictory. And the thing is, it is harder, I think, to work out how the party of government can get away from holding a referendum in which the majority of people who advocated for it and in all of the people who advocated for it who are still on the the scene politically were of the governing party and then a form of Brexit came which did not keep those promises. However, I don't really, I can't work out what the um, non-crisis looking political resolution to that is because because of first past the post it is essentially impossible to work out how a new entrant can properly supplant Right. So, I mean, I saw this in the Politico um, email, which is not as good as your free morning email, but it nonetheless exists. And it said, you know, um, the conditions are ripe for a new party. And I was like, well, intellectually, yes, but electorally, still, still no, still, still no. Not. Uh, so we've heard this last week that Vince Cable maybe missed that Brexit vote last week because he was at a dinner for the founding of a new centrist party, which, given that he's the head of a currently, a currently existing centrist party, is slightly alarming to me. I know. So I think from a, a Liberal Democrat perspective, I think it is sensible for Vince to be in and around uh, all of those kind of conversations because if he finesses them right then it is de facto a Lib Dem a, rebrand. A defection and a rebrand uh, whereas if if they are absent from the birth of any of those parties then if those parties are successful they will eventually uh, eliminate the Liberal Democrats right so it makes sense from his perspective what I find odder about it right is that if the argument for why not simply just join slash vote for the Liberal Democrats is, you know... Coal it's coal it's coal got loads of people in that, that I don't like, like yeah. Nick Clegg and Vince Cable, who are tainted by their association with the 2010-2015 government. Yeah, then what is the... Then then I, I, I'm less clear what you get from the new centrist party uh, perspective. Do you know what? I won't be joining in the new centrist party. Neither will I be joining the new hot political movement in town. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a little thing called communism. It's very hot right now, Stephen. Oh yeah, so because it allows people to have individual liberty untrammeled by the state. Uh, that's the new definition of communism. It's quite exciting to. I mean, I bet you know Mao and Stalin would you know think, oh, if only we'd got that right. I have been following that um, that particular Twitter row 
And increasingly, I've realized that, you know, that bit of uh, the Onions explainer about the alt-right, which is just like beliefs, question mark, why ruin your day by getting into this? <laughs> and increasingly, I feel that that has become my ideology about a lot of arguments on Twitter. It's yeah. just like, yeah, I, I, I don't have, I just, like the government, I do not have the bandwidth for... Um, I mean, so for people, I probably, uh, instead of just making snarky comments, um, Owen Jones, the Guardian columns, did an interview with Ash Sarkar of Novara, who's previously said that she's a you know, big fan of Corbyn, but not a Labour member because she doesn't think she'd be able to abide by the rules. And she is a luxury communist, right? Which is also something that Aaron Bastani, he leads Novara, describes himself as, he's in favour of fully automated luxury communism. So the idea is that you get AI in a post-scarcity society. And the thing is, like, you know, I love Ian M. Banks too, right? I'm, I'm, I'm fully with you on that. My problem is that in a world in which, you know, water in 50 years' time is going to be a scarce resource, fresh water, unless we have some great technological breakthrough about desalination or whatever it may be, carbon capture, I just think the idea that we're going to get to a post-scarcity society, like, I'm not going to put all my chips in the basket on that one. So I'd probably quite like to think about a political ideology that I could follow that would make sense in an era of vast and horrifying climate change. With, with most utopian ideas, they are mostly useful in a kind of like, right, so if I believe X, Y, and Z to be the case, what are the implications in the... But, you know, we, we're recording this in the world's hottest studio, right? Uh, whenever people talk about a post-scarcity future, I just think I would love to believe that we are heading towards mm. a post-scarcity future. Uh, but even like land that is livable on in 50 years' time might be something that is scarce, right? There are bits of India that people just say will be literally uninhabitable. You know, it's a country of a billion people. It's not just marginal bits of the you know, edges of the Sahara. Like, this is not... This is not the outlook in the world that I live in. And also, I just sort of fundamentally believe that it's like when you're playing a computer game and you want, I, sometimes I play Civ and I like to make it easier by giving myself luxury, abundant luxury resources at the start. But that's not fair, is it? Like, we can all make our political ideals work if we just change the conditions at the outset and you take away things. Like, oh, we're playing Democracy 3, right? If you just take away the idea that people get to vote, then suddenly it becomes a lot easier to get things done. However, it's not dealing with the world as it is. Yeah, no, and I think that is is broadly the case. In terms of a new centrist party, obviously, like as an advocate of as as the problem, right, in British politics, I am instinctively sympathetic. I mean, to, you're the problem. Yeah, I am the problem with politics. You know, like this sort of dead end, out of ideas, exhausted. Um, you know, like etiolated. I am pretty etiolated because, as I believe I've mentioned, it's really hot and it hasn't rained for two months. Uh, centrism. I am instinctively sympathetic towards the idea. However, one, first past the post exists. Two, if the problem, uh, as I understand it, is not wanting May, not wanting Corbyn, not liking having to choose between the two, the best, the literally the best real, like the best real world scenario, and I actually, this is what I think what they have in common, right? They, they're both just ways of going like, okay, I know these trade-offs exist, but, I believe in a world in which no trade-offs in which this made. problem yeah. does exist. Right, all that happened. I mean, this I was talking to Labour MPs about it because there was a, a fairly well-sourced rumour that sort of started doing its way around Labour circles about you know a new party was going to be uh, launched imminently. And I was speaking to various Labour MPs who were sort of that way inclined about it. And one of them said, "Well, what's the point? At the moment, I'm making the choice that I don't enjoy." But I think on balance, I would rather this Labour government in office than the Conservative government we have now. And they said, if I joined a new centrist party and we got 100 seats, which they said, which, let's face it, is the Ambitious. most... Yeah, is ambitious. <laughs> they said, that is, that is, you know, that is, that is, yeah, that is a, a big, big, big ask. He said... Because what did the STP get the first election they contested? I mean, in terms of votes, they got a shed load of votes so and got, it did not translate into seats. They got 25% of votes and they got, oh, I want to say... Eight seats, maybe? But whatever number of seats it was, it was just catastrophic in terms of the percent... Like, the difference between how many votes they had to get to get a single seat compared to the two main parties was appalling. And, you know, that Corbyn's Labour Party got a vastly better result than Tony Benn, than Michael Foote's Labour Party, does mean that we have to be cautious about necessarily assuming that an SDP Mark II would get an 83-style result. However, I would argue that some of the possible reasons why Corbyn's Labour Party got a better result in 2017 would tend towards a SDP Mark II getting a significantly worse result. And uh, also, the central problem of first-past-the-posts has not gone away. Uh, yeah, and then, as this person said, they said, well, 
And then all that happens is, is I end up back in the same position I'm in now where I have to go, oh, God, there are things about this I don't like, but on balance I'm sticking with the with, yeah. with the person who's so economics, comp- I agree. Yeah. Related compromises and, and with no prospect of getting anything that you want by being in government. Yeah, and so I... Then obviously there are a number of uh, really difficult questions um, if you are a Corbyn, yeah, if you're if you're on the centre left, right? That the present moment throws up. One, does your economic model work in an era where you can't just go where yeah, in, yeah, kind of in the yeah, in an era when house ownership is still going up and the private sector is producing X amount of growth, some of the like regulated and redistribute policy solutions are more fraught. Two. If you don't like the if you, yeah if you don't like and are ideologically opposed to uh, to Labour's present trajectory, but you don't want a Conservative government, right? Well, obviously, all of those things are difficult. However, I'm really not con- I'm I'm yet to hear a persuasive argument that a centrist party actually fixes any of those problems. Not least because I think they are all based on and indeed the fear that uh, people in the leader's office do have about a centrist party, all based on a misread of what the SDP's electoral effect actually was, which didn't change the outcome. It basically, uh, as King and crew decisively show in their study of where SDP voters come from, came from even, uh, basically the SDP did, had two, three voter sources, people who'd never voted before, people who voted Tory, and people who voted Labour, and they crucially took those two groups in an exactly equal proportion, right? There is... But that was the interesting thing about UKIP, right, was that where they took their voters from fluctuated between elections and over time, right? It wasn't as simple as they... Everyone saw them as a Tory problem and then they went, oh, my God, maybe they're a Labour problem. Um, So the effect of of new parties or new entrants into that market is, you know, is is really hard to predict. Anyway, I can't believe we ended up talking about the SDP. I'd say we're going to have a review of the year. What I didn't mean was... I mean, I just 1981 was a good year for... <laughs> a review of the last 35 years. Um, some other things which have happened this year... Oh, actually, so my new favourite MP, right? Go on. And this is the word favourite is used ironically, right? Is Jared O'Mara, right? Okay. My admiration for the man <laughs> literally <laughs> okay. is through the charts, right? So that's the start of the story of Jared O'Mara. First, yeah. uh, the, the Labour leader's office puts quite a lot of energy into uh, helping you be selected at a time so when... So for Sheffield Hallam up against Sh- Nick Clegg, so yeah. a winnable seat. I mean, he had a solid majority, but, you know, there was a lot of anger against the Lib Dems. And they still. knew that they had a tuition fees, and it was one of the places which even even when people in uh, in, in the top of the Labour Party thought there was going to be a fairly apocalyptic result elsewhere, they were a couple of places, you know, even when they were Which saying, I think is really worth stressing, because that is a bit of history that's being rewritten constantly, is the idea that actually everybody in the leader's office wanted to have a really aggressive strategy, because they were all convinced that the surge was real and it was going to happen. Which maybe they did over the course of get, seeing those, those polling numbers, but definitely not at the start, whatever anyone might now try to claim. Oh yeah, no, I mean, but... So they, so they so lot to the, help him be selected. They lot help him be selected, right, against the objections of a large number of people locally, which, I mean, fair Met enough. Him, because, presumably. Yeah, because, again, at the time, Lotto's assumption was that they would immediately after 2017 have uh, fewest or the same number of seats and they would have to fight a leadership election in which they might need every nomina- nomination they could. So the fact that he was Corbyn-friendly was a big tick in his favour. Yeah, right. Which, yeah, actually, fair enough. Like, one yeah. of my pet peeves this year is yeah. is people who seem to believe that only people whose politics they agree with are allowed to do politics. Right. I mean, Tony Bled certainly parachuted in an, an enormous number of his protégés into, into seats. Yeah. Then, second of all, it turns out and you have this, slash, turns out, slash, things that were widely known locally and you'd really think the Labour Party leadership would have done slightly better due diligence. But anyway, you're elected, this stuff in your past comes out. The... The Labour leadership, uh, among other things, arranges and shares and promotes a, a very, uh, actually very good, uh, but very sympathetic interview with Huck magazine. It then turns out that actually, as well as this stuff in your distant past, there is some stuff in your much more recent past that you haven't told the party leadership or MPs, many of whom have feel they have embarrassed themselves by going out to bat for you because you've given a speech at the Parliamentary Labour Party about how you've changed. At that point, you're suspended. The Labour leadership, again, spends quite a lot of political capital not kicking you out and lets you back in. Then at that point, you give a statement in which you've shown this has shown that the Labour Party is not sufficiently welcoming to... People with disabilities and, and autism and, specifically. Yeah, and, and people from working disorders. class backgrounds. And yeah. it's just like, I mean, quite literally, short of Jeremy Corbyn standing up and going, 
I too would have sodomized Jamie Callum with a with a piano. I actually don't understand. Is that one uh, of the things that Jeremy? That's one of the things he said on the, on the forum. This is another one of my things. How does that even work? This, anyway, this year has re- has revealed. I think is that there is this huge problem with um, the way a lot of media outlets. We obviously don't do this. Uh, report things as offensive remarks. So Hugh Gaffney, who made some remarks that were. Uh, I'm just trying to work out a way. This is going to sound slightly ageist, and potentially it is, but uh, a man of his age uh, just made an off-colour joke, which basically some people went, Hugh, you can't say that. Uh He went, oh, I'm sorry, I can't say that. And the Labour Party went, don't do that, you're going to have diversity training. Yeah. Which I think is a perfectly fair and appropriate um, response. But because neither his remarks or Jared O'Mara's remarks were published in 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 most of the oh yeah you have a, no way of telling why one massive, of them is different and the other one is massive you know. beef um mary big had this brilliant quote in new york times once about you know saying because no newspaper would print it no broadcaster would air it people got came under the impression that what people were sending me was like rude remarks about my hair right rather than the stuff like you've got a smelly vagina smells of cabbages or you know all this kind of you know you're a whore and all this kind of stuff like that really bad sexist trolling people and laura bates said this to me once um the feminist writer you know she said one of the things is rape threats in a way are a useful uh, like not useful, but you know what I mean. That they are uh, easy to talk about because you say rape threat, death threat, and people immediately know what you're talking about, and you don't have to kind of go into the details of it. But like, yeah, the same. It happens all the time. I remember once, poor my beloved Benedict Cumberbatch, now seen sporting a terrifying wig to play Dominic Cummings in that upcoming Brexit drama, once went on a talk show and accidentally said coloured people instead of people of colour. Like, and you could just tell he just, in his mind, like he was going for like, what's the, what's the thing I need to say now? Cause I'm in America and he hit the wrong one. And you just, then it was like, oh, Bendit Cumberbatch in offensive remarks, blah, 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 like racism storm. And you were like, well, come on though. This is so different to someone just like that, that um, executive recently who got caught dropping the N word on a conference, a party conference call. Like it's just, yeah, not, and yet they it's are just com- not the same they like, are racism storm. The, like, racism slur. And it's like, well, um, I mean, Arguably yes, but in a crucial way, no. no. And I think, <laughs> I think that is one of uh, press culpability in, you know, the political direction of the last however many years. Because if you continually report things without ex- explaining what they are and crucially what the source of the offence is, it does then massively. Um, but it also boost fuels the, the kind, kind of, of you can't say that stuff. Particularly, yeah, the white resentment narrative. It's just like, I just think there's a big percentage of people who just want to be fundamentally told what they can and can't say and feel that they know what the rules are and it's the instability that makes them worried. A similar happened thing happened with that, you know, that Tory MP that had to resign as a minister because of the sex texts. I went and read them because, you know, we've all got hours to kill. Wow. I mean, the trouble was the mirror had starred out quite a lot of them, so it was a kind of, it was a bit like the Enigma code. You were going, she's a what? So four words starts with T. Okay, a couple of things it could be. But then we're just... They, I just don't think you get a flavour of what was wrong with the relationship in the sense of the sort of power dynamic of it unless you actually read the words. Ditto, I listened to that. You, you know the former UKIP counsellor who killed his wife? Yeah. I think it's a really useful thing to listen to the 999 call, even though I thought, oh, this is really prurient. I'm not sure I want to do this because it gives you such an important understanding of the psychology of that. The guy is not like distraught and sobbing down the phone. He makes jokes so they go, How, is there, it's the dispatcher goes, is there anyone else in the house with you? And he went, no, there's just the two of us. Well, the one of us now. And you're like, did you write this material first before murdering your wife? Yeah, it's the, the, entirely possible that you did. And like the fact that he greets the, like, the policeman who turned up at the door with like, all right, chaps, this is not somebody who was seen down the road that ends in him being convicted of murdering his wife and spending the rest of his life in prison, right? It's just such an interesting... The detail and the texture of it just gives you an insight into it that you just don't get from the reporting otherwise. Yeah, no, and it is a, a very uh, chilling take. But yes, on a lighter, Sorry, I don't know where I was lighter, going with that. Jared O'Mara, my new hero, but just because... Ben Bradley, for the Tories, is kind of the opposite of that. Oh, and also, I mean, no, but that's another great stuff. Like, They're the, like the, the kind Tories, of you know, yin and yang. paid his legal fees. So when he said... What did he say about Jeremy Corbyn? Um... He said something. He basically he accused just, him of being a communist spy or oh, selling secrets. Yeah, selling secrets to the Russians. Or something. With and then he my favourite a- hashtag, hashtag, are you serious? Because he's <laughs> yeah. just no. like, as it turns out, yes, he was. Later, um, I will on the legal defence that I was not, in fact, um, serious. And then he did a great tweet a couple of days ago. It was like, uh, guys, it's not like someone just tells you what their programme for government is, and then if you don't like it, you get a chance to undo it. And, we, and then someone went, 
that's that, yeah, that's elections. Uh, yeah, I mean, him arguing <laughs> that's them, elections, him ben. arguing that the next election would be forever. With her. <laughs> but again, I think Ben Bradley is a great example of uh, of one of my favourite bad bits of MP behaviour, which is hilarious ingratitude. Right. So again, Ben Ben Bradley, the Conservative Party uh, stuck by him in circumstances which, frankly, they would have been significantly better off not doing so. Yeah. Kept him in his, his role for He's gonna wait for vice, the majority. vice chair for appealing for the youth. He then quits going, the checkers deal is bad, it's a disaster, I can't possibly support it, in a resignation letter which um, in which he basically went, having only just read the December agreement, I've decided I'm against it. I know, so I think he's actually my new fa- least favourite, he's my least favourite sitting MP, except... No, no. Well, I know. I think the shamelessness of Jared O'Mara, having had so much done for him, to suddenly turn around and go, "I feel unwelcome." I mean, they. Oh, and also, um, Lotto um, touted around his kind of comeback interview as well, where he went, "I'm really sorry." We should do with sorry. Joe Pike, am I yeah. right? And they did some like important interview now with, um, with you know, a changed Jared O'Mara. And then two days later, he was going, "I'm never in my life have I been so outrageously treated." Yeah, yeah. and it was just. I mean. Yeah. I still want to know what happened in that 48-hour period between the comeback interview with the, like, oh, oh, I want to make a tone for my mistakes and, like, uh, all along I knew that I was I was on my way out. I, they all hate me. But, well, if you're listening, Jared, uh, don't um, make any jokes about sodomising Stephen with a piano. Instead, write in and tell us what you were thinking. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm joined by New Statesman contributor Lawrence Scott, author of, first of all, The Four-Dimensional Human, but now a new book, Picnic, Lightning. Um, Just explain the title, because it's not obviously related to the subject matter, which is about our ideas of reality and the digital world. So where does it come from? Yeah, I know. I was really thrilled and somewhat amazed when the publishers said, yeah, let's go for this title. (laughs) It's completely unintuitive, non-explanatory title. So it's a quotation from Nabokov's Lolita, and it appears much earlier in the book than I remembered it when I thought of it for a title. So the narrator Humbert Humbert is describing um, how his mother died when he was three. He says, my very photogenic mother died when I was three. And then he opens brackets, picnic, there's a comma, lightning, end brackets. And first of all, I just remember reading that and thinking that is the bleakest, funniest way of announcing a parent's death in literature that I think I've ever heard. Um, I just loved the the pain of it hidden in with the sort of the, the dark humour as well. And I, I don't know, there was something about it that um, it just seemed to resonate with a lot of the ideas I was having about what, when a strangely real event such as a death happens, how do you incorporate it into the sentences of your lives? And this was sort of Humbert's slightly neurotic, oppressed approach because he never mentions the death again. That's all the mother gets, just this tiny scene, picnic, comma, lightning. But it quite picks up a lot of the themes you have because not only do you talk in this book about the death of your parents, but also about memory and the way particularly that you talk about a birthday party for your grandmother, is that right? Yeah. Um, and, and the fact that that was one of the few events of your childhood that was filmed has fundamentally reshaped, you know, that is now your memory of it, That that, that, that you know, which is the same thing I feel when I think about that, that Nabokov sentence, right, which is that he has milled down his all of those emotions into just an anecdote like yeah. it's just it's just that tiny capsule and that's all that remains of his mother and to some extent that's what we're all doing with our digital lives we're kind of we're writing our stories constantly and ta- and, and rewriting reality into a narrative so much that that's and that's all that people see from the outside yeah and it's sort of bounded by this little fortification of the brackets i think we sort of want to display it brackets are funny aren't they because they're sort of open from above but they sort of they're sealed off at the sides and we i think we want that and the digital life offers um, the way we can curate images and say this was the this was the official record. There is a strange combination of openness and enclosure, sort of keeping people at bay while seeming to be revealing. Um, that birthday party you mentioned, yeah, I think it's really strange. Um, you know, I was born in 1980, so I'm of that generation that can sort of think back and think, well, 
how has digital life changed based on something that was a bit digitally happening in 1989, and that was having a, you know renting a big clunky video camera as a massive treat for a birthday party. So that was the became the official record. My brother sort of walked around through the garden filming us all. And what was when I was thinking about it for the book and describing it, how it really stood out in my memory was that it was the official camera angles and sounds that I heard from watching the tapes that dominated in a way that all of my other childhood memories have much more incoate, sort of unstable, I think, images. You know, when I think of another events that weren't video camera, they sort of sh- they're much shiftier, you know, and the, the, the camera angles change and who's there and who's not. But this is really sort of fossilized. And I wonder if, if this is what young people's childhoods uh, is uh, predominantly like now. That must be a completely different relationship to the past and memory. Yeah, I remember. I, I think it's really as you get older, and I'm I'm a couple of years younger than you, but not very much. You get a, a real sense of the fallibility of memory that I don't think I really appreciated in my twenties. I, I was writing about a, a film that was made by a, actually a friend of mine, and I was convinced that the lead character had a hair in a ponytail. And I went mm-hmm. back and watched it, and, I, and, and I'd written it in the, in a piece, and I went back and watched it, and she didn't. Yeah, and I had just. I don't know whether I'd kind of because it fitted my idea of the character that that's what she would be like. I think I had just made that happen in my memory, but it was quite a disjunction to see the difference between that. And I feel a lot the same. A couple of months ago, I decided to delete all my old tweets, and now I have them, so they only last for three months. Because I think that is a much more natural way of it's. If you're treating it like speech, like it's just going to be colloquial and yeah. fast paced, then it's very weird then to have it have the gravitas of written yeah. language that's yeah. something that's a statement that you would put more thought into. Yeah. And we've just seen a director, James Gunn, get fired from Guardians of the Galaxy this weekend for tweets that he did you know, eight or nine years ago, and he said, "Well, you know, this isn't the person that I am now." But we're kind of fixing people in aspect now mm-hmm. because you are being followed around by. You're dragging this kind of yeah. <laughs> corpse around of all the people that you used to be. And I think that's particularly... I hope that people in their teens and 20s are just, A, going to be a lot more casual about being forgiving about yeah. that stuff and also probably a lot better at not being on Twitter and just using things like you know WhatsApp or Snapchat yeah. that, that delete themselves. But it has fundamentally changed our relationship with our own past selves, I think. Yeah, and what what is the real the sense of a real person that has to totally change? Like you say, the, the sense of forgiveness will have to have the idea that a person is... a a thing that's in flux all the time and that you're almost sort of a limited company from your own pasts you know you've said these things and which is the real you and when I was thinking about the various sort of chapters in the book one of the big things that I was thinking about was how do we reconcile these really sort of maybe ephemeral offhand thoughts and ideas how do we find place for them in a public space which is constantly demanding you to confess and to be open and to reveal your feelings at any one moment what sort of scale do those feelings have like it seems like we're we're being courted for our opinion just by all sorts of to get us to interact by the pizza restaurants we order from or clothes shopping uh, websites online we're always being asked what did you think of this tell us your story and I just think that that it creates a weird sort of paradox where a really small fleeting opinion gets takes on the scale of like one of the Ten Commandments. Mm. And that's why we're all in trouble now all the time, because there's this monumental quality, as you were describing, to these uh, to an offhand comment from eight years ago. I know people who've got in trouble for thinking out loud on Twitter, thinking that was the sort of the pace and form of the medium. And yet they their offhand thoughts sort of weren't really up for public consumption, but we were encouraged to... Uh, offer them up for that kind of consumption all the time. And it makes it very hard for outsiders. Uh, I think particularly when you're talking about almost quite enclosed societies like Twitter. One of the things that was really interesting writing about 4chan, for example, the internet yeah. forum, which everybody is anonymous on, it said, you know, you thought this would lead to this incredibly kind of freewheeling, non-hierarchical space. But uh, authors like Whitney Phillips, who've written about it, have said, actually, it's the opposite is true. Because everybody, there's no identity markers, actually what becomes the way of telling people apart and sorting themselves socially is who knows all the law, right? Who knows yeah. all the words? Who, who's who been on there the longest? Who knows the injury? And, th- and then what happens then is that the memes and the injuries become a sorting mechanism of demonstrating, you know, how into that community you are. So there are kind of clearly some very deep human needs that you can try and keep scrubbing them away mm-hmm. and they just keep coming back. But I want to talk to you specifically about politics because mm-hmm. I think the stuff that you're talking about 
in terms of reality. Like, you know, we talk about fake news a lot mm. now. And about, I wrote a column which I talked about certain politicians having a reality distortion field. You know, mm. they just project this aura of, no, 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 you know, we've always been at war with East Asia. Um, mm. <laughs> and how and how incredibly difficult it is as, as, as journalism to kind of throw rocks at that shield and hope that anything is ever going to get through. You know, to some extent, Donald Trump is just reality, you know, um, he just sort of pushes the walls of it back as his yeah. personality advances. Yeah. What is, you know, from anything that you read or talk, yeah. people you talk to, is there anything that can be done about that? Yeah, that's. I think what's interesting is that as soon as Donald Trump got elected, the comedians in the States were saying, well, that's the end of satire, that's the end of irony, the world has become so satirical. And actually, I, I came across, there's a writer I really like called Fran Leibowitz, and she hasn't written much, but she speaks a lot. So I unearthed some uh, documentary footage from her in the 90s, and she's talking about basically the same thing. She's saying the news... You know, uh, infomercials look like news as an anchor sitting behind a desk saying this is our sort of uh, hair, uh, our shampoo product or whatever, but it looks like a news uh, report and the news is all colloquial. So this idea of this melding between um, the reality and the sort of the commercial fantasies is, to is not especially new. But what I think is interesting about in terms of strategies for dealing with politicians who are like that is that if there's no sort of consensus of what is true or what is not or if you're constantly responding to a politician where you can you can't immediately judge is that right or wrong on moral grounds is is it true or not that's the first question then irony doesn't have the purchase that it used to because irony sort of depends on sort of subverting some stable form of truth you know an ironic stance relies on a, a firm footing of truth but what i've noticed in in people dealing with politicians such as trump is to work with scale so that he, for, for instance, he doesn't care about things that are real or not, but he cares about how big or small anything is, the sense of scale. So even the big blimp, sort of the baby blimp floating above London in protest to me, that seemed the typical thing that uh, you can get, hit, you, you just cut out the axis of truth and falsehood altogether and get him on sort of the idea of reputation because that's what he cares about. Um, so, for instance, there's a meme that went around called Tiny Trumps. I don't know if you've seen that, where they insert Trump in sort of this sort of like leprechaun-sized scale of himself in with all the other world leaders. And so he's sort of miniaturized. It's sort yeah. of a Gulliver's Travels thing. And so I think that's an interesting approach when you can't sort of count on veracity or the facts. You can begin to sort of mount at least sort of a, a form of satire that's size-based. And I'm, 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 I watch that approach with interest. That's really interesting because the weird thing, you might you talk about irony, and I think that's true in the case of Trump, is it, that relies on there being some, you know, there, there underneath. Right. But the thing that's almost weirdly relaxing about Trump is that he's not, unlike a lot of modern politicians, very self-parodic. He does yeah. actually weirdly take himself extremely it, yeah. seriously in a yeah. way that is... It, not relaxing exactly, but you know what I mean. It, mm -hmm. it, it, it feels solid that he does. <laughs> he's not constantly trying to under say like wink and be in on the joke. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, Tony Morrison had a great observation about him saying that he might smile, but he never laughs. So he has sort of zero yeah. sense of humor. He is very stable in that sense, and he's so sort of doused in ratings and and he's a digital president in that way that he cares about the polls and he cares about quantification and likes and those numerics that. The younger generation, I think, is getting quite hooked on. He's sort of this strange figurehead for that. But tell me, are you on social media of any sort? So I'm on Facebook. Mm -hmm. uh, my publishers are always trying to get me on Twitter. Like, it, my editor takes me out and gets me a bit drunk and says, tries to sort of sign me up while I'm tipsy. You, you'd be great at it, you know, because it's seen as sort of um, the demand. It's another sort of avenue for getting the word out about your work. So I'm not on Twitter at all. So yeah, just Facebook, really. Um, How do you feel about that? I mean, I'm always on the brink of quitting Facebook as well. And I just, I've never been able to, for one thing, I know that I'm quite an addictive person. So if, if I was on Twitter, I would have that pace of life all the time. And I, for writing, that's really dangerous. When there's engaging, you know, you must know this, you have a sort of a, a set piece, even 2,000 words to do. And you think, if I engage on that strange back and forth of what's happening now online, it'll just chop and chop and chop into it. Yeah, oh, and so. it's completely dispiriting that you think, I'm going to, I'm so often I write very long pieces and, and people are kind of interested and they like them, but it gets nowhere near the level of immediate attention and the endorphin kick of just saying one faintly yeah. controversial yeah. thing. Yeah, The reward system is completely <laughs> no. out of whack. No, so I've just not had the almost the nerve or the 
just the stomach for it, I think. And I'd be worried about that whole, that Ten Commandments thing slash personal opinion, just the whole, the way in which an opinion can become this strange monumental event. And you may have changed your mind about it, but it's become sort of magnified. I mean, that's a lot about the sort of the politics and ethics of the right to be forgotten, isn't it? One of the um, definitions that, you know, if you want to have some tweet or news item about you taken off a Google search linked to you, it's all about scale. Is it? Is it now, does it continue to be proportional or representative of, of the person you are now? So again, that's about scale. That's one of the measures of should this Google search be linked to your name? Does it adequately describe you almost in percentage terms, you know? But that's why I think it's fascinating because there's been a lot of dystopian um, writing about, you know, China's social credit rating system, the idea mm-hmm. that you can basically be banned from buying like long distance train tickets or, you know, if you if you have these kind of like sort of points on your driving license against you. But we've ended up with Google in a situation where one private company basically owns your reputation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's now lots of stuff. If you are a public figure, whatever, however you want to define that, you can kind of go and argue the toss with them mm-hmm. about what stuff they put in your um, results. Yeah. But it is it is quite strange that when when China does it, you kind of go, well, that's obviously a terrible thing. The state shouldn't have that kind of power. But there's weirdly more ease about Google, which is a single, you, as close to a monopoly as you can get legally, yeah. really, in terms of search. Yeah. Know, bless Bing and DuckDuckGo, not <laughs> really anywhere. And therefore, it kind of, yeah, it owns people's reputations. So it's I, I, not a position that it is a company ever asked for, really. I mean, I don't no. ever know anyone, you know, when Sergey Brin and Larry Page were writing that Al- PageRank algorithm back in whenever it was, 2000, they didn't foresee that they were going to be in charge of who people were and there's this uh, there's this poem by sylvia plath called uh colossus where she imagines sort of reassembling her her dead father almost as though he's this smashed statue and she's this ant sort of wandering over the brow sort of gluing him his forehead together and his massive nose and lips are strewn across this greek landscape and that image really was useful for me in the book because that's what it felt like um google and other companies like that assembling our data were doing that building this a monument that sort of will emerge throughout our lives of our data selves and who we are. Like we, th- we tend to think of the selfie generation and those quite tired tropes of instant portraits, but there's a much slower sort of daguerreotype scale, even slower than that. Yeah, more monumental uh, scale portrait of us emerging. And the people um, who invoke the right to be forgotten are sort of trying to tear their own statues of themselves down. I think it's really interesting when we look at what's happening with statues and monuments the physical things around the world saying they're being pulled down because the the people say are rep- supposed to represent some grand moment in the nation's history which is really colonial and gross but there's this one big thing that they stand for but really the whole uh, the rest of their lives was despicable and even the acts that they're celebrated for are often despicable so it's funny that there's these physical statues being pulled down where a life is sort of um petrified according to a single achievement or event or whatever you want to call it and we're sort of doing a digital version of that that's really because i think the statue controversy is fascinating because each one is you know it's, it's also it's a, it's a cumulative effect of them right and it's yeah. also the way that in the same way that you know one thing fish don't know that they're in water right yeah. there's that we don't know we're swimming in a history that has been written one way and, yeah. and and something that you talk about in the book about the idea of you know facts versus kind of narrative and storytelling they tell the story of britain particularly in a very you know, of lots of men in pith helmets going to places, right? Yeah. And, and there are so many other ways of... I've just been reading... This is very random. I've just been reading a, bi- a biography of Oswald Mosley, not a very happy yeah. thing to read in 2018, um, written by a, a male historian in the 70s, and it barely re- mentions his relationship with Diana Mitford because that's seen as being... Kind of, I guess I think it's being seen as being sort of ladies' history because it's like about personal relationships right. and this is a history of political thought. But clearly she was a huge influence on his political thought. And it's that way of compressing down all the complexity of someone's life into that particular narrative that at the time mm. was, how, was how history was seen to be done. Um, final question, who are the most compelling storytellers in modern politics to you? And what are the most compelling stories in modern politics? Well, I think the thing that immediately comes to mind in terms of the story of modern politics is actually a formal one. So it reminds me a lot, when I was doing research for the book, I looked a lot at Greek theatre because I was thinking about sort of the stage in which political statements can be uttered. And I discovered that the the word obscene and obscenity, there's an etymological dispute about where it comes from. There's a Latin root which says it's to do with sort of genitalia or filth or feces and, and what we think of when we think of as obscenity sort of in terms of pornography. So on the one hand, we think of light of digital life being soaked in porn and obscene for that reason. But the Greeks had another 
Uh, there's a well. There's one strand of the possible etymology obscene, which is Greek, which means off stage. What was funny about that is that in Greek comedies, when there would be something going on, the comedy would always draw attention to the storied nature of the play itself. So it would be very sort of what we would call postmodern. It would draw attention to the comic devices and make that totally um, upfront. And that would be where some of the gags would be. So right, and you get a chorus literally going, here's the thing you've seen, here's the thing exactly. you've seen, here's the thing you're about to see. Exactly. So it's highly self-conscious and that's where the laughs are. But Greek tragedy knew that that would, um, that sort of thought, that open self-conscious form would puncture the sort of the intensity of the drama so tragedies were by contrast very close they were just within the narrative they weren't calling attention to it and I think that modern politics is really strange at the moment especially with Trump I mean he's one of the strangest storytellers because he he's sort of typically classically comic that he is always drawing attention to the political mechanisms he's always saying when um I remember that there was this uh a press conference where he just vanquished another Republican uh, candidate rival called Ben Carson. And he said, you know, Ben was doing really great in the polls. And so I had to go after Ben. And it's politics. And he understands that he's always sort of highlighting the tawdry mechanisms of the political struggle and making that part of the story. He's quite a postmodern political storyteller in that way. Well, that's we had Helen Thompson from Cambridge University on last week. And she said the trouble with Trump is that sometimes he's so alluring because he will just puncture a thing that is that everyone has believed, but no one has said. Like yeah. the way that, you know, the, for example, you know, no one else is paying as much money into NATO and like yeah. America is carrying the burden of that. Yeah. The things that everybody has just been polite, like the polite <laughs> fictions of diplomacy, he just stampedes through them. And 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 just to follow on with that, the, the, I think Theresa May alongside Donald Trump is such a, a strange figure because she's completely the opposite. You know, she has, you know, she's so not obscene in the Greek sense. Everything is just her political duties, obligations, to the point that she's seen as robotic, so that when she tries to go a bit personal and a bit off stage and a bit behind the scenes, what does she say? She says, oh, I ran through a field of wheat once when I was young. Extremely naughty. And we're falling about laughing about that a year later because it's so out of contrast. But the other thing that if you're going to make a contrast between Greek uh, tragedies and, and politics is I think everybody wants to be the chorus and no one wants to be Agamemnon, right? <laughs> yeah. Everybody wants to be on the sidelines commentating. No one wants yeah. to be the one who has to make the, the impossible decision yeah. right? because we've lost our kind of ability to deal with the idea that governing involves endless compromise that's yeah. seen as a betrayal in itself yeah well the whole story around that is one of has, has been talked about a lot one of treason um the the discourse around it is really strange and also the way um if you look at the brexit um narrative it's the rhetoric is completely dominated by talk of fantasy on both sides you know headlines in the telegraph and the guardian are all talking about the fantasies of the other side and that seems a really impoverished political discourse to me that it's there's no talk of expediency or um positioning point scoring there's none of that it's just a, a, a fantasy and it's almost an letting people off the hook as though this is the story of just one person. Fantasies are very personal, of course, and private, and or if, and if they are collective, they're associated with cults. So it's a very eroded sort of image to use or metaphor to use for public debate, isn't it? This sense that it's just a fantasy. I thought we were going to end up on a positive note, but um, I don't think there are very many positive notes to be had in, in politics at the moment. But there is a, a brilliant book to read. It's Picnic, Lightning, and that was Lawrence Scott. Thank you. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You ask us! Oh, I should have done that ABBA style because I went to see Mamma Mia at the weekend, which I highly recommend. I would just like to say if anybody's feeling sad about Brexit, which surely is everybody who listens to this podcast, then you want a pure blast of joy. Mamma Mia too. Mamma Mia harder. Okay. Look I... at me Look at me like you've got like amazingly t- great taste and you'll be watching some subtitled Korean film instead. Don't no, no, give I'm me just, that. I'm just, I, it, that. The look was more thinking weren't most of the bangers in the first film. Ah, so they just reuse the bangers, that's fine. Waterloo, well, okay, put it this way. Someone walks into a French restaurant in Paris in which the waiters are retired in Napoleonic costume. You know where this is going. Okay, right, right, because that was when, when I saw it, I was just like, I mean, I'm not opposed to it. I mean, yesterday I watched... Herc- you know, Disney's Hercules. Underrated. Actually- Hasn't it got um, that guy who uh, dated Jennifer Aniston for a bit as Hercules? He's actually quite good. 
uh, Tate Donovan. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is, it is very good. Um, I, I enjoy, I always like a good Disney musical. It actually, it suffers from the fact it only has one good, it ha- only has one banger in it. Won't say I'm in love, but it's still very good. Anyway, our question was not about which Disney films have the best bangers, although seeing as we are about to enter recess, maybe we will end up having to tackle that. In Can we do a whole special week. podcast now? How much I love that Robin Hood with the sexy fox. And literally every woman my age does. Okay, well, we'll leave you coming out as a furry to a, <laughs> a later podcast. But our question is also about recess, which is... Shouldn't they cancel recess? And then we could get through some more Brexity stuff in the meantime. Asked a, uh, I believe a young man on Twitter asked me this. So in theory, yes, right? Because there is an awful lot of unresolved Brexit stuff yet to be got through. In practice... Regardless of whether or not Parliament is sitting, everyone else in the Western Hemisphere in, in politics is, is going to shut down uh, for, for the summer regardless. And the slightly scary thing about Brexit now, I think, is I can't work out how the political... Pro- right. So the political problem is that the government has said it doesn't want a hard border on the island of Ireland. It doesn't want a border in the Irish Sea, but it doesn't want the United Kingdom... To break up. To No, to be part of the regulatory oh, orbit okay. of the, yeah, yeah. which means that there are no that that means you crash out without a deal right that eliminates which all will of the put potential. a hard border therefore on the island of ireland if you crash out without a deal yeah i mean so because ireland will impose one right this well, is the also the just... wto will impose like that this thing's right if you if you if you don't yeah i mean it, it's doing my nut brexit Stephen, and i know it's but i'm sorry i'm going a bit danny dyer there i would love to be in nice with my trotters up but unfortunately i'm here talking about brexit and the thing that annoys me about it is that the the persistent inability of people to accept reality, um, particularly when it comes to no deal planning. There's a story in the Times this week about the Amazon boss warning that no deal would lead to civil unrest. And this is being presented as like, oh, how very dare he say this. But it, like, if you're the owner of a huge multinational business with just in time ordering, for example, like a big supply chain, then yeah, this is a pretty big threat to your, to your business. Ditto the idea that actually we can't import and export food. Britain is not food self-sufficient. Like if you're going to... As the Brexiteers keep telling us, take the idea of no deal seriously, then you have to take the idea of no deal seriously. And that includes downsides as well. You can't just be Ian Duncan Smith going on the TV and blithely going, of course planes will fly. Ian, you thought universal credit was going to work. Why do I care what you think anymore? Well, yeah, I mean, this is, this. yeah, essentially, yeah, I, I agree with, with all of that. I am, I am deeply enjoying this way that um, every time a business comes out or in the case of this time story says privately and then it makes its way to the newspapers and says something bad about Brexit, Conservative MPs suddenly discover an objection to how it works. I mean, just like, oh, you know... Like, oh, they also Amazon go, well, communists as well. Like, yeah, but Amazon doesn't even pay its taxes, so why should we listen to them? And you're like, it's, uh, yeah. Okay. It's also just like, one, congratulations on becoming social democrats, I guess, but also, two, you've been in power for eight years, right? If you've got an objection to how Amazon does business, I have really bad news for you about what it says about your competence and effectiveness over that period. Um, Yeah, I mean, effectively, like, the Conservative Party is acting like a a toddler, right? It has basically rejected all of the outcomes. But with a toddler, an adult can actually intervene. And I can't really work out... Who the adult is? Yeah, because, I mean, so obviously, right... You're kind of going, yeah, do you want the carrots or do you want some yoghurt... Or do you want to not have anything to eat at all at the moment? And then kind of toddler's going, ah! And yeah. then at some point you have to go, look, are you just going to like, are you going to starve? To-? But then that's what happens with a toddler. You go, well, when you're hungry enough, you'll eat. Yeah, but the th- yeah, the problem is, is that basically the crisis point, if it arrives before we leave, happens in November, December. Now, our our small but perfectly formed audience of conservative listeners are quite reasonably going to go like, but what about the opposition parties? Now, ultimately. Labour is going to vote against the deal. Now, yeah, with my, I own a worryingly large number of uh, items of clothing and crockery with the EU flag, all of which I bought before June 2016. I mean, that is the level of boring Remainer I am. Where do you even buy EU crockery? European Parliament. Wow. I like Parliament. Okay, but uh, crockery? I mean, is that, hang on, do you use that crockery? Is that like best china? No, I use, I use, actually, my European mug is sadly in pieces, so I need to go back to the European Parliament and get another one. My Ed Balls dancing mug has just got a big crack in it. Um, it's a metaphor. I have got something from the Europe, from the UK's last rotating presidency, a tote bag, which has gone from being a, a niche thing to a real, real magnet for. Remainer angst. From from Remainer angst. People come up to me and talk to me about how worried they are about no deal because they're like, I see you've got a bag, I'm worried too. And it's just like, yep, yep, I really, 
if I had known that this bag would cause strangers to talk to me in the supermarket, I would not have bought it. I think this happens a lot more, though. A friend of mine was telling me that they start, they effectively sort of, someone asked them something about Jeremy Corbyn in like a bakery in North London, and they ended up running a sort of unofficial politics seminar for people who were then getting, and like joining in. I saw the tweet at the weekend about like 12% of people don't care about Brexit or whatever that thing was. And it's like, hey, bubble dwellers. And it's like, whoa, wait, 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 88% pe- well, of people I, I, care about Brexit? That's the, I don't, very the lead I, here. I didn't get a definite... So I thought that I don't believe 88% of people do know what the Chequers plan is. I, I'm sorry. And in it, I actually would challenge anyone who thinks I'm being unfair to write a side of A4 about what Chequers... Contains. Don't make me do that, Stephen. Uh, well, this is, I, I just don't buy it. But I also don't understand the definition of the word bubble, which includes eighty-eight percent. It's a really, I mean, yeah, big that's, bubble. That's just the bath at that point, <laughs> isn't it? But um, yeah, essentially, Labour Labour will vote against it, come what may. As will the Liberal Democrats. As will the SNP. As will Plaid Cymru. And the thing is, is I, I although I do sort of think that stopping No Deal is a price worth paying for a political party's electoral viability thereafter by effectively dipping their hands in the the massive betrayal that the Conservatives are going to end up having to deliver if they're going to get any form of deal. I don't see why that is a reasonable expectation. Right. Uh, I if would you're like a Tory, them to do it, I don't but think I, you can go, yeah, but we really cocked this up, so um, could someone else sort of help us? But it's kind of, it's part of the... I feel that when people who complain about it, it's part of the genre of of opinion column, and I think of as the why doesn't politician X have the courage of my convictions, mm. right? I feel like that quite a lot about Jeremy Corbyn these days. I'm like, why isn't he more pro-Remain? And then I'm like, uh, I'm pro-Remain. He never really was. I think the thing is, I think even if uh, the Labour Party were led by someone who had been more into Europe beforehand, it is an awfully big ask of the leader of the opposition to go here is a so the final deal if it happens here's a uh, really bad final deal which i will therefore sign up to the continuation of freedom of movement it will include the united kingdom as rule takers and it will not include the full reclaiming of 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 uk financial contributions right it will it will break essentially all three of the of those central asks because the fourth promise of Exact same benefits, you know, free flowing Irish border. Nothing will change. Those those five promises can't be reconciled with one another. If you are the opposition party, why would you ever, ever do that to yourself? The only time you're going to do that to yourself is if the politics shift independently of you, i.e. we have some kind of crisis, and suddenly it does become politically easier for the parties of the opposition to go, oh, look, here is a... Can we do a rain check? Not a rain check, a reality check. There we go. I would love to do a rain check. Rain, remember rain. Um, Just about, I feel it's all, I feel fairly apocalyptic about it all. Uh, Is there still a chance it could all be okay? Yeah. So there are two ways that it could be okay. Uh, the, The first is that essentially what happens is, is you have someone activate but never actually have to carry through their contingency plans the conservative party that it turns out is enough of a chastening moment for the conservative party to go okay what we're going to do is um but what what's the thing that they do because the thing you is just i can go, see we'll like, have a transition and we will have can we please have an endless transition and a really meaningless statement about the future relationship mm. um because the the problem yeah the problem with the backstop which is in, in the advance of in the absence of agreed solutions Northern Ireland effectively won't leave, is that the United Kingdom, not the, the British government, not unreasonably, does not want its own territorial integrity to, to change. And also, in terms of the preserving of the constitutional status quo in Northern Ireland, the beauty of Northern Ireland and Ireland being in, in both in the European Union and in the customs and regulatory orbit is it does allow everyone to slightly fudge the existence of both the border on land and the border on, in sea. So regardless of whether or not of where you believe the border actually is, it doesn't really exist in either of those two places. The backstomp has the reverse problem of un, of going, actually, there's a border on the island of Ireland, mm. which will uh, will lead to paramilitary violence and upheaval on uh, the Republican side by going, actually, the border is between uh, Northern Ireland and the, and the United Kingdom, which will so lead to political consequences. On this. So the possible there, answer is endless fudge and some sort of meaningless statement about someday, one day the fudge will end. Well, yeah, just that the Conservatives will basically say we will have an endless transition. 
until until our civil war on Europe is resolved. Uh, Good, I'll be putting that in my diary because I'm sure they'll they'll stop banging on at Europe. But, um, because I just think that's probably the only uh, way out that they could get without some kind of. I, and but I think the most likely outcome of all of this is that the country has a fairly hairy couple of days when it becomes clear before the deadline has been reached that we are not going to reach a deal. You will see people activating their contingency plans. People will lose their jobs. But ultimately, that moment of panic will be enough to make it politically doable for pro-European Labour MPs to break the whip, for the Conservative government to go back and sign up with even more concessions, and you end up in transition slash park. That is, like, regrettably, the optimistic scenario at this point. Well, as everybody departs off on their summer holidays, thank you, Stephen, for saying that literally the best that we can look forward to is a really, really terrible arrangement. Happy summer! You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alan Lewis, and my co-presenter, Stephen Bush. Recorded by India Bork and produced for this week by James Shield. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Unscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Stephen's morning email will be taking a break over the summer, but we'll be back in September, so make sure you're signed up by searching for Stephen Bush Morning Call. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.